Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club um, Spotlight. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Kirsty Diaz, the Managing Director at Prisman Good in the UK. Hello, Kirsty. Hi. Nice to be here. Kirsty, I, I think we met at Somerset House 2017, which feels like a million years ago, but also feels like a second ago. It does, um, but wow, a lot of things have happened since then, haven't they? <laughs> it has, and, and, and so when I go think of how much has happened in that relatively short period of time, and we've had this massive acceleration of change that we thought would have taken 10 years to occur has happened in less than two years. So that's a multiplier of five. Yeah. It, may, it may even be a multiplier of 10 because I think the change actually happened last year. At the same time, we've seen the UK exit from Brexit, uh, through Brexit from the, uh, from the uh, EU. Yeah. And that then means, it's because I, I look at the UK as being just this fantastic case of the UK has now said, I was being held back in the marriage that I had with it, in this big family and I wanted to go my own way. And now it's demanding of the UK to work out, well, what is your own way? What was that? What, what was the underlying frustration? And where is the brilliance behind that? And, and so I find that an incredible innovation moment because the innovation is now come forward, stand up, you, you had a bee in your body, bonnet, show us what it is. And the UK, if you go look over, over the centuries, from industrial revolution, the social movements, public health movements, it's, it's been a leader of the world. So the proposition historically is that it's going to actually bounce out of this, but then it got a little bit interrupted by COVID. It was a little bit like somebody was planning a party, but then a rainstorm came. So, I, so, I, so I'm interested in some of that with you. I can see you being very polite, but it's like, I want to strangle you at this point, Mark, is what I'm thinking. Is that kind of where you're up to? I mean, yeah, Brexit, for me personally, um, is not, you know, I, I don't see it as a positive thing. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure it was the wisest decision, nor particularly representative of the, the views of the majority of the population. So, um, yeah. uh, and, and, and I would have to agree with you, just like yeah, we're living, We're living with the, I think we're living, we're now experiencing the consequences of those decisions, of that decision. Yeah, and, that, and so that relatively uninformed decision. Well, it's so you had a circuit breaker event, a lot like a, um, a, a domestic violence event or a infidelity event in a marriage. All of a sudden, there's like a thunderclap, and things change, and we have to work out how to pick up the pieces. Yeah. So we've got Brexit's happened, COVID's yeah. happened, but we've also got Prisman Good works as a global practice with a phenomenal amount of work, which is outside of the United Kingdom. So I'm really interested in how do we get to a better future faster with a strong economy, a sustainable environment and social equity, both in the microcosm of what you see in the country that you live, but also from the briefs that you're doing for clients who are in all of the corners of the world. So it's a pretty big conversation space that we've got here. We've got a lot to talk about. We do have a lot to talk about. We're going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> a lot to talk about. And, and I want you, as you have done in the past, to pick me up when I'm being a naughty boy. Okay. So, because <laughs> I'm meant to try to elicit things here from the people who are, who are in the session, not to embarrass, but to try to work out can we push some boundaries? Yeah. Push boundaries. Now, one of the things that I'm big and strong on, that social equity part, is for, for want of a better term, I'm an Australian, so this makes sense, the shitty deal for women. As a, mm -hmm. as a female leader in the design sector, mm -hmm. you must see a range of things that um, uh, between making your hair stand on end, just asking how the hell is this the case, why are so many women exiting the, the design sector, um, you must get this insight of it doesn't seem to be the healthiest environment for women to work in the design sector. Hmm. Well, I would like to say, I'd like to think that, you know, Priestman Good, you know, is a company. Um, and I would say it's very important to say now that we're an employee owned company who um, 
you know, we actively, well, we have a pretty large percentage of our workforce are women. Um, and we've tried, you know, we've tried really hard to um, ensure that, you know, we are recruiting the best designers of, in the world, right? And so we, if they are women or, you know, wherever they're from in the world, wherever, you know, whatever they are, we're looking for great creatives. And I think we're also very conscious that we are designing the world around us. Mm -hmm. And to do that really well, you need to have broad opinion and experience within your design team. And so it's really important that women are represented in those in that decision making in that forming of the world we live in and the design of the world we live in so it's really yeah it's really important to us as a company that we are um broad and representative um and you know i was talking to some kind of quite recent graduates um a few weeks ago you know about what their peers were doing and no matter who you are, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people actually don't become designers after they graduate from design degrees. And, you know, why is that? Is because the work isn't there or because it, you know, it's quite challenging or difficult to get work. Um, so I think it's great that people go into other fields with design education, because I think it's important that we you know have really informed clients in the world and people that understand that design and creative thinking can be a great process to you know influence all kind of sectors uh -huh. um but i think it is yeah interesting of the kind of dropout yeah on a postgraduate basis and then once you're in the you know you've embarked on your career actually you know staying in it sticking with it and, you know, as an employer that we um, kind of can facilitate and support designers to continue their career as their lives change. Yeah, and I th so I think there's, there's an interesting thing. When the intake of designers was very small, you need, it was like you needed every candidate to go through on a life career. It, it was like this vocational mapping. We need 100 designers. We've trained 100 we better keep those hundred in the industry. As we've seen the education institutes grow the number of graduates that are coming out, I think what we're seeing is particularly in the area of like design in the boardroom, we're seeing people who have got design education, like people who have legal education or finance education, and then they go on to other roles inside the enterprise. And so it isn't that we've lost a designer. What we've done is we've put the designer's knowledge into somebody who becomes another type of executive. And therefore, the collective knowledge of the, the benefits of design to transform and being the most proven, reliable method to accelerate transformation, that, that then is now imbued in those people who have gone into other roles inside organisations. So in a way, it's a little bit like the design virus that's gone out. So... So there's a, the older culture, which is every candidate has to stay in the industry, the vocational model. The other one is actually a mass education, um, a culture building model. And I think design seems to be in, there in an interesting transition between is there enough design, uh, designers around or aren't there enough? And if there aren't enough, then you need to make sure that you're retaining them. If they happen to go into further fields, it can just be good for the ecosystem. So th th that's, that's my yeah. frame. I, yeah, no, I would agree with that because, you know, when you're talking then about, you know, perhaps going into a different field and then becoming, you know, more, I don't know, on the management side or going into different fields and ending up in the boardroom with design thinking, then obviously you then have an advocate for the value of design you know at the decision making level which is you know what we all need you know i think all companies benefit from that and we saw the period of the 70s and the 80s uh other professions such as accounting and law 
that the number of graduates compared to the number of roles was out of balance. And then those people found other pursuits that, that, that sorted, sorted them out with a career. And I think as we're seeing the number of graduates that are coming out compared to the number of roles, we're seeing them go into their own startup. They're going into, I want to understand about patent law and I want to understand the intellectual property side or I want to understand the innovation side and, and head down as an entrepreneur inside the company. So, so I think there's a really good distribution. There's a burst point where the intelligence on, in a board or in an executive suite when it comes to design is that you're getting much higher quality clients that are coming through. And if I got you on the spot to think back, you know, five or 10 years back compared to the types of people that were briefing you versus the type of people that are briefing you now, I think it's fair to say that their, their literacy is a lot higher now. Do you think that's a, a reasonable statement? I think it depends very much on sector. Good. So, sector so sector experience. Okay. So, so is it set? So, there's going to be a sector thing. There's also going to be um, uh, individual companies, but we know that there's people who have actually got a quite high performance model that they're coming through with. But you, as a company, you do a lot in the transportation or mobility market. Is it, yeah. is it since COVID, has it still been called the mobility market or is it back to being transportation? No, I think companies have an aspiration to yeah, position themselves more in the mobility space. Okay. All right. Because because I'm not going to as many events, I'm not getting the uh, it's no longer transportation, it's mobility, which which I because there's a very big difference between, you know, um, heavy rail, light rail, and end of journey mobility devices. And they, it's the end of journey that seems to have the, have the excitement around it because little startups can do that. Whereas you've got massive players who are working out 30 year programs for heavy rail. So, so I, 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 I find- You know, I think a lot of uh, train operators though, I mean, certainly, you know, across Europe, um, are seeing themselves more in the space of taking ownership or um, yeah, being um, their customer's partner in the end-to-end -end journey. So part of the reason why I wanted to head off into some of the heavy rail discussion, and, I, and don't change anything, but I'm just looking behind you. The sun is beaming in behind you, which is such an unusual occurrence at this time of the year in the UK. So, so just stay with it. It's great. But, but the heavy rail thing is 30-year programs. You know, these, the decisions that have been made now by, by the manufacturers of heavy rail yeah. will have impact on our society and for a long time and through their life cycle they're going to have um, replacement replenishment up, upgrading on of the rolling yeah are you seeing people who at their core have an understanding about the selection of materials from an environmental impact the life cycle the carbon uh, carbon footprint uh, is sustainability imbued in these companies or are they still, oh, we like to go pour in a foundry a, a bit of metal and then we go put a bit of steel and some rivets? So I, th I think they're quite advanced, but you, you'd see that all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, first and foremost, um, when you're designing trains, you are designing something that's going to be around for a long time. So that in itself is... Uh, you know, a, a win for sustainability because you're looking at kind of a 30 year lifespan. And I think, you know, even in um, you know, my career at Policeman Gouge, when we, when I first started working there in 2001, the company had been working with Virgin Trains on the design of um, the first Pendolinos. So uh, Virgin had bought a large number of uh, new new trains that were operating on the west coast and um they are only just uh you know they're beginning to have the conversation about you know the replacement of that rolling stock and you know the tables are still around the seats are still around 
and they are being you know actively reused by um uh, rolling stock leasing companies so they're you know they're actively thinking well we're not going to necessarily throw these away you know what can we do with them how can we reuse them so when you you know start to design those things you do have a responsibility to um think in the long term about you know cradle to grave what's going to happen to them so right now we're in this next phase i say we kind of the rail industry uh -huh. um, is in the next phase of um making investment new rolling stock and now it's much more being driven and informed by you know what materials and processes can we use to you know re reduce co2 emissions um and to take that kind of uh introduction of of sustainability into those heavy industries and actually yesterday i was at a, a rail supply manufacturer in the midlands uh -huh. and, uh, where the sun was shining as it is today and um you know i saw that firsthand like this commitment to this company assigned up to a charter called eco vardis and a genuine commitment um to uh yeah to thinking differently using new materials um and that that is being driven by the supply base um and the cuts and the customer base so you know the train manufacturers are demanding from their supply base that they are meeting these targets and for me it was really refreshing uh to you know rather than be dealing with something conceptual which uh -huh. is really important because it's those kind of concepts and uh you know early thinking which helped to influence the market but i was actually seeing this this is impact practice in a factory being done now and really? i think that is really important yeah that's fantastic because applied design is when we get the benefit you know it's a, so you can have as many whether it's engineering or design as many white papers written as many propositions it's when you see it down in the manufacturing base you see that it's actually been designed through plans it's actually it cannot be put there it, or sorry it can't be avoided it has to be in the in, in the in the delivered product and you go awesome we've we've got there we've gone through that cycle but that probably started a decade ago yeah a, and i and i'm reflecting that we're using this particular podcast is going to be our last spotlight for the year so we're recording it just ahead of the COPE26, but it will come out just after COPE26. Yeah. And COPE26 is, uh, is a result of years of negotiations to go get different standards there. You know, it was the Kyoto Protocol, there was the Paris Agreement. And you go, this is really interesting. We're getting to the point where the idea of zero is now our imagination. It's not a reduction, it's a zero point. And I, and I think what's interesting there is following that longitudinal journey. But there's another longitudinal journey, which is how do you get beyond zero? How do you go do things which are energy positive? And I'm thinking of one of the, one of the collaborations that you've worked on with uh, people like Hyperloop Transport Technologies. So uh, the viewers, um, uh, Prisman Good did the initial capsule for uh, the rolling stock capsule. Is that the correct name for it? Or what do you call the, the device? The capsule. capsule. Okay. For, for Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, because there are a number of different Hyperloop yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking Hyperloop Transportation Technologies and um, winner of um, uh, the London Design Award as well. And uh, that unit there, was it's got a whole bunch of things but it's got rapid proto prototyping in there it's got very advanced manufacturing and design systems would put the wood put together in relatively zero time so it shows that design can be responsive and fast yeah but what i find so fascinating is these tubes that they've got which are vacuum tubes are now using solar cells on the top of them and they're actually putting electricity back into the grid because they have such a large expanse of solar cells across a nation 
that they're putting energy back into the grid. So rather than thinking how much energy, energy does this use, the network of hyperloop transport technology um, rail, or rails, tubes, adds to the electricity in the community it doesn't demand of the grid. And I go, now that's interesting. Like, it, now, it's going to take at least a decade till we start to see that rolled out on mass, if not longer. But the plans are there so that we're seeing how do we add to our community rather than how do we demand of natural resources. Now, there's a lot of invested energy in, those, in, in building that system there, but they're saying we want to see the operations that we're, that we're carbon positive, that we're actually in a beyond zero position. Is that something that is in the imagination of a lot of your clients that they want to work out how are they actually getting beyond zero or is it, or is it so new that the compliance point is still how do we get to zero? Well, I think, um, uh, I think that the, you know, the most effective uh, outcomes will be where infrastructure and the whole system the infrastructure and the vehicle is considered as a system yeah. so you are you know considering what the impact of the you know the build of that system and the impact actually in the intervention of creating the tube the tracks are considered as well as how we're gonna you know make um you know put some things back when we're actually in operation so I think you know, the best, yeah, the best things are being considered from beginning to end as yeah, as a whole system. Yeah, and I think that's that's a massive difference, isn't it? Because it was there was no even concept that you had to go consider what happened after you made something and how much energy went into making it. So, so in a relatively short period of time, we've evolved dramatically in our understanding of sustainability, circular economy, reuse, upcycle in there. So I was just going to mention actually at this point that I think I said to you, I, I, I went last night to the private view of Waste Age at the Design Museum, mm -hmm. um, which uh, has a couple of pre-smooth projects in it. I'll show you here. And the, and the two projects are pretty amazing. Talk to talk to us a little, a little bit, particularly about the one I, uh, that has to go do with the airline food. That that project um, is very. Um, that's this project here, which is mm -hmm. called Gatling Ward. Um, we uh, we actually did, uh, designed that pre-COVID. So in. Um, yeah, in the autumn of 2019, we had an exhibition at the Design Museum where we just did a kind of uh, investigation into the amount of single-use plastic used in onboard service on um, air aircraft journeys. And um, then we looked at redesigning a meal tray service totally out of sustainable materials. And that has begun, you know, that's been the, beginning of lots of conversations with airlines and people in other industries to look at you know what materials can be used how can we do this differently how does the system work so you know it's not just about the design of a nice meal tray but it's about you know really considering how is the waste removed from the aircraft how is it then you know recycled resorted how are you dealing with different kind of international guidelines around waste disposal and how do you you know manage that much kind of bigger system because there is you know on a global level there is incredible inconsistency um in you know how we you know, basically um classify uh materials and then how you recycle them and you know we say that's different on a global level it's actually different in the UK on even a regional level uh -huh. so you know there is an opportunity for a kind of you know universal system um to yeah to introduce much better kind of governance and management of, of recycled materials so that you know that was a get on board where we did the concept about um onboard service that um yeah that's 
been the start really of um, much greater understanding on our part of, um, of how to implement something and thinking about all the different steps that, but you know, we're obviously talking to material developers of brand new materials um, right through to, you know, recycling centers and how they're disposed of. Um, but one of the things I was just going to bring up at the beginning of the exhibition, one of the most interesting statistics is that the majority of that there are basically kind of, a, you know, a, a table showing a different kind of economy levels. So if you're, you know, whatever, low income, high income, super high income of how much waste is generated. And if we probably overlaid across that, you know, socioeconomic grouping, which is not in the exhibition, but this is just kind of, you know, this is what prompted my thought and looked at, you know, how educated those people are from low to high income. What is really concerning is the majority of waste is generated by, you know, high income people who, you know, should be educated enough to make different choices and yeah. i think that is kind of an you know that is like such a kind of trigger to say okay people what are we going to do about this we've got to start living in a very different way mm. we've got to start using that income very differently yeah and look at the waste or, or the recycle collection system that we have for rubbish here in Australia. It's the same system that was delivered to me in the 1980s. It's one bin, everything goes co-mingled. And I'm going, I'm sure that's not the right way to do it. <laughs> that's like, I, I don't drive a 1980s technology car. Yeah, yeah. Yet I've got a 1980s recycle system and everyone's saying, oh, it's so expensive and it's, and it's cross-contaminated, so we just have to send it to landfill. So the, the percentage that actually makes it for the intended use is very poor because they think it's too difficult to go change the curbside replacement. And I mean, I was going to say that, you know, that is different. For, you know, my experience is different in that, you know, I have my food compost picked up I have you know recycling and I have general rubbish but there is the you know I feel like sometimes with the recycling um you know what should go in the bag so you you know you put it in the bag and then in a way you feel like you tie your bag up you put it outside you think I've done my recycling you know tick I'm a good person but actually was it all clean? Were there some things in there that shouldn't have been in there? Because I think what the individual doesn't understand is when you are making those decisions, actually, if you've made a mistake and there is cross-contamination and they see something, whatever, dirty in it, that might just go in the bin. Uh -huh. You know, that might go into landfill rather. That might just be, end up being incinerated. So it is, you know, how do we educate individuals now if i lived in germany that would be very different because i would be taking responsibility myself for taking that to the recycling center i would be doing the sorting and that would be part of my civic responsibility as a good citizen and obviously we've talked about this before but you know that idea of what is it what does it mean to be a good citizen um you know every day what does it mean to be a good global citizen and i think that is you know increasingly we need to be um yeah kind of yeah just looking at our own behavior yeah and i think and i think that's you brought up such an important point the concept of civics and civic the civic responsibility and participation changes it all there's, um, in some parts of Melbourne, there's very small workers' cottages, um, frontages which are about uh, five metres wide. Um, that may be generous. They may even be four metres wide. And the 
the people at the local government authorities have decided we'll give them an, an, an additional bin for, so there's their general rubbish, there's their cardboard, there's glass, there's their compost. These houses don't have enough room across the front of the house to store all of the bins that they've got. And every house... It's my problem. <laughs> and every house has a, has a set of bins and you're going, I think your response to the challenge is the, is the concern. The intent's right, but where's the, at the end of your street, that there's a bin to go, you know, walk down the end of your street and that's where you go put your glass. Or, you know, we, we, yeah. there's, a, there's a mindset that it all has to be dealt with with the person who's paying for it. And I think that's where those, having a bin outside everyone's house is, well, you're paying your rates, you get one bin, you get two bins. It's it's flawed even before we start. And that, sorry. If you, you know, if you live in an apartment block in Madrid, I don't know, you know, where people, you know, are more apartment dwellers, hmm. you know, how do you, how do you make that work? Like, how do you store it in your house? How do you, you know, those is a it's a big design question, you know. It is. Um, Have you seen the Barcelona system? Sorry. Uh, remind me. So the Barcelona system has mass hoppers at at nodes inside the neighborhood. And trucks come along and pick them up, and, and these are an eight to ten ton truck that just comes along with a crane, picks up this hopper, which is in the ground, totally sealed, so there's no birds and there's no smell and odour, but they pick up something where they, they get two of them on the back of the truck and then they drive them off and another truck comes along and they put the fresh ones in. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing it at an aggregate scale and the civic engagement is you walk at five metres or 100 metres me. You walk at five or 100 metres, we'll do the rest. But our the compact that we have is there are different hoppers for the different sorts of rubbish and there's a social participation where people want to go and, and be in that. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Social participation. That is interesting. That's, you know, the beginning of community, isn't it? It is. And, and when we turn around and we... I heard a very interesting talk that went into the difference of volunteerism in different countries, and it came whether they actually had um, a feudal system or not. And feudal systems then led to the idea that you had a lot of volunteerism because the person who was the feudal um, leader would say, oh, my people will do that. I don't want to pay money to the regal so that they can have a fire service, my people will do it. And they, and, and they borrowed time from the people who, who were in the feudal system and saying, well, you've got to give back a bit to the community. And when I, when I went and lived in Sweden, I had people who asked me two fascinating questions. They said, why do you get amateurs to do the work that professionals should be doing? I said, what do you mean amateurs? They're volunteers. And then I realised they are amateurs. And now I see the fire services in, in Australia have gone from a 100% amateur volunteer who had some mm -hmm. skills and training into now fully professional fire services in a lot of areas that used to have volunteer fire services. And if we don't understand the roots of those sorts of things, you don't get into the, really, the anthropological biases that are there. And that's what holds us up from getting that sustainable environment going. It also holds us up from a social equity perspective because we think somebody does or doesn't have an interest in this. And I think, as you've mentioned, that it's actually the, the more cash that people have, the more, that, the more rubbish that they're producing, the more damage that they're doing to the environment. And so you're going, well, because we generally say if you've got more cash or more means, that therefore you have more stature and you're going, well, actually, no, they've got a diminished stature because they're damaging the environment. So we've got this, our idea of equity in the community, the environment and the strong economy, those levers seem to be dramatically out of place. 
And that's the type of thing where we should be saying, well, the people who have got a lot of a lot of means in that very strong economy should be doing more to make sure that they have a high equity because they're doing the right thing by the environment. And, and I think it's important that we work out how do we calibrate that. And I don't think that people are doing it in a mischievous way. I think it is ignorance. They don't yeah. realise that some of the choices that they're making. And I'm, I think many of the viewers would know that I'm a very active sailor. And the gentleman that I sail with is a, um, uh, is a, a, a large building company, the owner of it. And uh, I've been interested that he, he's made sure that I spent time with, uh, with one of his sons so that his son was hearing different concepts around strong economy, the social equity and the environment so that there was a broadening of the diversity of thought that may have been around. And it wasn't meant to be to, to bring him on board. It was actually about saying, son, you should be hearing other voices than we may get through our immediate social circle. These are, these are the important learnings there. And I was really impressed with it because as a proprietor, I know that he's trying to go keep his staff safe. I know that he's trying to go do the right thing by the environment. But he's also got another challenge, which is he's trying to actually make a profit. And sometimes because of government standards, other people aren't doing the right thing by the environment. And if he does the right thing by the environment, he loses the deal because he's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. If he um, puts to one side the concern of the environment, then he can win the deal. And so that's the, the, the power of government regulation to enforce standards that then mean there's a level playing field. And I always go back to the paper cup. If, yeah. if every cafe in a region, so let's say the City of London, because we all know, you know it's a region, if the City of London had a law that said every cafe has to use um, domestic compostable uh, cups, Everybody has the same cost base. Yeah. So everyone's doing it. But when one person can have shitty for the environment cups and the other person can have the domestic compostable, there's probably a price difference. And somebody who's trying to work out how to make a little bit more margin is going to go lower cost rather than greater benefit. Yeah. That, I guess that is, where, that is where legislation comes in too. Yeah. And then... Um, and that's so you, I was just going to say, so if you take the, you know, in the UK, um, I don't know how many years ago it is now, but several years ago, there was an introduction of actually you're going to have to pay 5p for a plastic bag every time you buy one in the supermarket, they're no longer going to be free. But that, you know, that it's a, you know, in a way, it's like very small nudge. It's a very good example of nudge theory, isn't it? Yeah. It's a small nudge, but that 5p, which is relatively low, but obviously if you do that every week and you're getting loads of bags, um, adds up. But, you know, that, that made a change. It made a change in behaviour. People then show up at the supermarket with their bags because uh, they don't want to pay the 5p every time. Yeah, and, and so then there's, there's a movement here in Australia, which is a, a quite a localised movement, which is called Red Cycle. And Red Cycle is to go capture all of the films that are around biscuits, around products, all the things that the normal recycle system can't handle. So mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realise that those small, you know, wrappers that are around the outside of your tea bags, yeah, yeah. around that box, that cellophane, that's not, yeah, yeah. that's not generally recycled, but it is when you actually collect it together. And so what Red Cycle did was they said, why don't we go put which never happens in Australia, point of retail is where you drop your red cycle off. Yeah, yeah. So you, you got it from a supermarket, you can go back to the supermarket and you can drop it there in a corner. And it's been incredibly successful. So I began to participate in that and then I began to look at the packages that I was, that I was consuming, working out, well, what is this? And so many brands that actually say that they're great, you know, for the community and, and corporate social responsibility. 
Nowhere on their packaging was an instruction of how to dispose of it. There's a rubbish bin that says dispose of thoughtfully. I'm going yeah. thoughtfully. Give me some direction. <laughs> it's like it, 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 I'm not in the mystery quest. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see how red cycle, recycle. Like, give me, give me the side. You know, tell me what number it is. It's like yeah. it's that number system has been around so long. But marketers have decided to tell me it's gluten-free or it's bamboo-centric or it's, you know, washed by nuns who have never seen the sun more than three days in a row. That's all on the packet. But there's nothing about what to do with a piece of waste. And if I have yeah. to think circular economy, the first thing is the stuff that's wrapped around the, the thing should yeah. actually have a pretty, and not, not thoughtfully, it should be do this. I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what thoughtfully is, but, it, but it's interesting. Marketing people are still into, oh, well, that takes up too much room on the package. We, we've got on our wine here in Australia this very interesting picture of a pregnant woman to, to go say, if you're pregnant, you shouldn't be drinking. Yeah, yeah. And then the standard change, because the marketers began to make it, that it, there was a little bit of juice. And so now it's actually that it's a reversed out white panel that you cannot challenge. Right. Because the marketers were getting into, let's try and hide the social benefit. It's right. a public health information. It should be. And I th so I think they're the sorts of nudges that we need. I want to do the red cycle. I don't know how to. I, I'm trying to make a decision. I don't know how to. And... And that's such an important thing for designers to say at our core, if you're working in design, just having a chat with your colleague and saying, didn't you do the package for this thing? Where's the instruction, which is do something properly with it, not thoughtfully or even anything. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, though, that that prompts, though, or I, I thought you were going to say, in fact, that just having to think about okay, I'm taking off this whatever cellophane off a tub of grapes was making you think, actually, should I be buying my grapes like this? Mm. Yeah. Um, should I be, you know, making a choice where I'm buying them, you know, loose? Or like, how do I make those decisions differently? Do I take my own bags? Because I actually have colleagues who go to the supermarket and they make their choices based on how little packaging there is. So if something is, if it, there is a bag of apples, you know, in a plastic wrapper, cellophane wrapper, they don't buy those apples. Yeah. They make and, a different choice. And I think, you know, we will begin to see more of that decision-making. Yeah, and the way I try to frame that is, how do I be a little less shitty every day? Because... Because making a decision which is any apples could be inherently a shitty decision. It's like if they're all individually wrapped in plastic and I've got stickers all over them, that's a shitty decision. If I just got the apple that was loose and it didn't have, and I knew it was a Granny Smith apple and when I went to the register and I touched on the screen, because I don't see anybody scanning the little stickers that are on the fruit. The non-recyclable you know, non-compostable stickers. Then you're going, why are they there in the first place? So the more we reject the over-embellishment, which has little functional value, I think that's such an important thing. It's at a citizen level, as civics. It's at a designer level to challenge. But it's also for everybody just to be able to say, how do you be a little bit less harmful to the planet? Which means that you, you've got to accept that every day the things that you're doing is harmful. Yeah. And also, you know, kind of slight acknowledgement of, you know, ha have we reached this kind of peak consumerism and peak expectation of how much comfort we are meant to have? You know, we let, you know, someone said to me the other day, you know, where did we get to the point where we thought, you know, oh, how could I live without underfloor heating, for example? You know, why is that like a basic requirement? You know, in the 1970s, you would probably have put another jumper on, you know? 
in the 1970s in the 1970s you know oh yeah all slippers but in the 1970s you know you probably weren't eating like you know whatever meat every day people lived in a more kind of economical way of you know using leftovers you know having a roast once a week and then thinking about what you do with it you know maybe we just need to kind of go back a little bit to um maybe a more basic way of living you know we live in a pretty luxurious way don't we, we do love in the very and you know that, that does make me think about um this is probably like 10 years ago I, you know there were a lot of uh articles at the time around uh bill gates was a kind of used as, always as an example of it as um of, of new austerity so rather than thinking about kind of lux you know richest you know richest man in the world whatever is was not dripping in labels and gold and overt symbols of wealth he was you know whatever just wearing a navy blue crew neck jumper all the time but yeah. that idea of you know what we aspire to what we see as successful you know maybe in an environmental way we should be trying to achieve much more of a you know that living in and I think maybe steer is that is the wrong word to sell it but living in a more stripped back way is you know is, is the right decision to make yeah i'd have to agree 100 percent with that so you, how could how can you make the behavior of, of more than that you flip it that actually less than is the new more than yeah and it's like well less actually shows that you must have more if you're going now that's a very interesting challenge to say the fact that you don't need to overstate your wealth and your and your means probably mean it probably says you've got it yeah. if you if you've got to be wearing the you know the um who was it beyond borg if you've got to be wearing the underpants that have the big statement that says they're beyond borgs you're probably trying to over impress because you're being a bit too in people's faces rather than actually saying, oh, you don't need to know what type of underwear I'm wearing. You don't need to know, you know. And so I think there's a very interesting move to how do we actually have less equaling more. And I also think that the century that we're in is a century about adding whereas the previous two centuries were centuries of extracting. Yeah. Now, and, and that's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. I, I'm a massive music fan. So I know that when we say things like the 80s music, we're actually referring to music between 84 and, and 89. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. The first couple of years of a decade are the hangover from the previous one. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Okay. So then when if you go through and it's like, oh, yeah, the 70s sound, we say, well, the Beatles were still doing their stuff in Credence, Clearwell Girl. And you go, oh, that's right, the 70s sound was like mid-70s. And the 80s sound was really mid-80s. Yeah, yeah. And the 90s, and, and you go, oh, so we get this lag. A century probably has 20 or 30 years that you get into the century before you know it. The 19th century definitely had that. The 20th century had that. So I think we're kind of going through this. We've almost finished with the with the 20th century, and we're just beginning to go see what the 21st century looks like, which is that 2025 period. Yeah. And it's funny that you you can oh, so it's there is change, but it takes a while for the half-life of the previous century to, to wane off before you then get the rise of the new century's behaviors, <laughs> which is why I think we're seeing such acceleration that's happening particularly around social equity black lives matter as we saw last year a spark was lit with unfortunately with george floyd a terrible incident but it actually went and it resonated all around the world and people who said enough is enough came together and yeah. said it definitely it's enough now 
Um, yes. So that, that was great. And that, sa that says to me that there was the momentum, underlying momentum, which probably goes all the way back to the LA riots that were in the 90s. That's where, you know, that's where they started. And then it builds up and builds up. And now I think anybody who tried to challenge a Black Lives Matter perspective or saying that there should be equality based on, on skill, skin colour, that they get shouted down. So, so that's good. The environment, there's definitely people, as you were saying, that rail manufacturer that you were visiting. The culture in the organisation, the supply chains that would be there, the design systems that actually specified that go back at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. go, so well, the momentum's there. You know, I think we've gone through the J curve part of it seems like nothing was happening and now it's rising particularly quickly. So that then gets us to the what's the imagination and where's the inspiration? So before I wrap up, I want to go and actually work out two things. One is I'm going to ask you a question. Who's inspiring you or what's inspiring you? Mm -hmm. And then I also want to know, is there anything that we've skipped over which will be an absolute travesty? I, I don't think we've spent enough time, and I, I think we'll do a different session, which is talking about the awesome women of design who are working out how to go and bring their careers together, bring cultural differences, bring different values into the organisations, because women are not alternate men. Women are these, they're their own fantastic beasts. And if we don't understand the talent opportunity there and embrace it, I think we're missing out a lot. So I'd love to do a session um, around that. But are there other aspects? Sorry, go on. I was going to say, yeah, me too. I mean, I would say, you know, who inspires me? Um, I think, I, you know, we were talking earlier. I've met, and I think this is kind of, you know, an interesting part of the last 18 months. You know, I've met quite a lot of people online in forums like this, um, several of whom are women, who... Um, you know, are leading organisations, making great change um, kind of every day in their working lives. And I am, uh, you know, I find that very inspiring. Um, and, you know, I'm inspired by my colleagues every day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a great privilege to be um, kind of exposed to great creative thinking and, you um, you know that's what makes me go to work every day uh and i feel i do genuinely feel really privileged that i get to you know i really genuinely love working with uh students and educational organizations seeing kind of fresh ideas you know we do quite a lot of work with the royal college of art um we do work with much uh you know younger people kind of more teenagers through the national saturday club and actually seeing and meeting uh you know young fresh minds with different viewpoints and you know a very different view of the future of what they're looking for i find that really inspiring yeah. and i um feel that it's my responsibility but also um you know, a great joy of my job is to help people make connections and introduce, you know, young people to, you know, networks where they'll be able to, um, you know, use that as a springboard for whatever their lives are going to be. Um, so I think that is a big driver for me. And what have we not talked about? Well, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that, actually, that, you know, we... I am very conscious <clears throat> and we've talked you know in previous conversations about social equity but you know when we're hiring um our design team at Priestman Goob we're obviously looking for the very best designers that we can find in the world but I also really want to find people who've got something uh interesting to say I'm you know not looking for a kind of carbon copy cutout of you know ideal designer um who has like i'm you know we're looking for great kind of creativity but we're also looking for stories and experience and i think that comes from many different walks of life yeah. and so i'm interested in you know just generally widening participation 
and we're kind of actively trying to do that through organizations like the National Saturday Club but also we are um, kind of in the process of introducing apprenticeship into into Priestman Good so um, you know in quite spe specific roles but you know trying to access or provide access to young people to a professional organization that they might not have considered before and wow. um, I think that's really um, important uh, as an employer that we are um, yeah looking to do that and also you know looking to share our privilege we run you know a successful business and um, you know we're the springboard for you know lots of designers lots of designers stay with us for a long time and might spend their whole career with us but you know designers you know spend some of their design life with us and then they go off and do different things and you know I think as a company we want to say you know instill great values that they can, can you know go off into their um, future design lives and share those values so I think if we can demonstrate that we are championing social equity championing better access and creating a wider, more diverse pool of designers, wow. um, then that's, you know, we're doing our job. That's an important part of what we do. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I'm, I'm, I love about the practice is that you, you do a lot of um, conceptual work, which I'd actually call pre-brief work. And so it's actually thought stimulating their mind gyms for executives to say like a little bit like uh, the airline food. That's not a particular airline who said, can you redesign our system? It's actually pre-brief. It's the, had you even realized this was possible? Let's go and show you what's out there. But and I think that again is, um, I think in the innovation process, you need to influence from the outside yes. so you know you need to you know old school commercial model of it might have been we offer you know three products and that's what we do and so that's what the customer can buy mm -hmm. why would we they're all buying these three products why would we why would we introduce anything else so sometimes you've got to push from the outside to say you know what the customer didn't know it but actually you could be doing this or you uh -huh. could be doing this you could be doing it differently you could be doing it in a different material you could be making a completely different product entirely but you need to kind of educate and inform and inspire from the outside to help industry move forward and I think for me that is the absolute purpose of our kind of conceptual thinking that we use our position and experience of seeing like you know we are global so we work predominantly in international markets so we are seeing things happening all over the world that we use that experience uh -huh. to kind of put ideas out there just to it might even be just like pushing the public discourse around a matter but you know we have this extraordinary position of experience um you know because we're lucky enough to do what we do um but we need to share that to help kind of industry and society move forward yeah and and that to me if i had to say that is some of the best inspiration that i can see because what you're doing is you're saying beyond here there's other opportunities and executives want to hear that Talent wants to hear. Talent wants to know that they're going to somewhere that is focused beyond here. Yeah. Executives want to know I'm working with some people who are beyond here. I really don't want people who can do a polished version of what's already been done. I want the people who are in next. I want those people who next is actually the starting point, not a challenge. And, and that's, what, that's what I absolutely love about the work there. So, Kirstie, I'm going to go wrap this up. We've been going just on and out, which is fantastic. 
<laughs> we could talk for another five hours, I'm sure. Well, let's go do another one and let's bite off some of these things because I particularly, I would love to go do a conversation about the cruise ship market and your customers in the cruise ship market because at the start of COVID, cruise ships were thought to be the most unsafe place in the world. If you go look in, in infection and mortality rates, the safest place to be in the world was on a cruise ship. You know, it's like so. So I find that that very interesting. But there's so much we can talk about. Thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome, and uh, I'm simply humbled to be able to walk around this with you. Thank you. Always lovely to see you, Mark. Thank you so much.